Welcome, gentlemen, to the Collectability Podcast. It is a huge honor to speak to each of you, but even a greater honor to speak to each of you together, because this is the first time I've had all of you on a conversation, and we're going to dive deep into some interesting questions today, talking about each of you and also about Loop This and some of the global initiatives that are happening. We're also going to discuss uh, the marketplace and what is happening in the watch world. So welcome to Collectability. We're speaking to Eric Koo, Justin Grunberg, and Sam Hines. So welcome and thank you. Sam, you're in the hot seat first because everyone is talking about Sam Hines right now. Uh, this month was the big announcement uh, about you joining Loop This. And the watch world is buzzing, has lots of questions. And uh, today is your opportunity to offer some, some answers. Uh, so first, I'll give the, uh, the official bio. After completing his studies in the UK, Sam Hines studied political science at NYU. He joined Sotheby's London in 2002 as uh, an extremely junior member, in quotes, of the watch department before moving to the Henry Stern Watch Agency in New York. Program note, the first time we worked together. Uh, Sam became the youngest head of the department at Christie's Next, um, Christie's Auction and Private Sale in New York at the age of 28. He moved to Hong Kong in 2010. By 2014, he was the co-head of the Global Watch Department at Christie's. Program note, the second time we had the chance to work together. Next, he was the Global Head of Watches at Philips and then Sotheby's from 2018. He has countless auction world records to his name. And Sam just joined Loop This, announced this month. And Sam is going to be sharing some amazing stories today about his uh, past, present, and future. So to begin, Sam, a special congratulations from here in New York on this new chapter of life that you're embarking. As we're recording this podcast, everyone's talking about you. So for starters, how are you doing? Thank you, John. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, uh, very good, very good. Um, you know, obviously uh, very excited about uh, our announcement. Got lots of positive feedback from from friends and collectors and, and really looking forward to going to work with Eric and Justin. I mean, they're two guys that um, I have worked with now for close to 15 years. You know, the, when they first sort of shared the the idea and the, the, the business model and the, the concept behind Loop This, I was um, really excited about it just because it's a, a fresh a fresh approach to, to what we all know, you know, about auctioning and, and selling watches. And no, I think it's it's really exciting. I mean, there's been some great results. Um, and also the, the community that has been built surrounding the site is very sort of watch collector focused and it, it's quite geeky in lots of ways as well, which is is really cool. So yeah, so I'm excited. Um, I'm glad to finally get started um, and work with with Justin and Eric and um, and building up the the site, uh, furthering its reach in Asia. And um, yeah, seeing seeing how how we tackle the the bigger houses out there um, with our streamlined approach to doing this. So so yeah, very very excited. And um, I'm very excited to to finally be on with you, John, as well. So it's it's great. Thank you. It's wonderful seeing the combination of technology and people coming to the watch world in a way we haven't seen before. And the three of you are each individual powerhouses and, and together, uh, uh, I think the bar is quite high. I think we could expect some even greater things and, and what a great start. We'll, we'll talk about some of the records that Loop This has uh, recently broken and uh, I think we could expect so, some more. But first, we have to go to the past a bit, Sam. We, 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 have, we have to talk about... Uh, I, First, our, our experience together working at Patek Philippe USA, which seems like forever. 
It does, doesn't it? I mean, that was um, uh, a really great period for me. I think I was I was there for a year, and working there at Henry Stern, um, or you know, under the umbrella of Patek, um, it really showed me how well a company can treat its employees. There was, you know, never the word budget or or we've got to save costs or we have. It's just if you're going to do something. Remember the grand exhibitions that we had in in New York and L.A. Um, and it was just let's have the um, the exhibition and do it to the best of our ability. So I, that was really exciting working for a company like that. Uh, and also I, I, with you, I, you know, I learned how the, how the brand really distributes the product. Uh, that was really interesting for me. And then also, you know, part of my um, position there was visual merchandising. Um, and it was amazing to think that, you know, Geneva would, would come up with a concept on how the, the product is supposed to be displayed in, within the store. Um, and then we would send those displays to, say, a, a retailer in Texas. Um, and then the retailer would receive the displays and then they would sort of customize them so that they look like their own store. So I remember there was a guy, he shaved all the bird's eye maple wood off of the displays and put his own wood on there. So one of the reasons why I left and wanted to get back into the auction world is just to work with all types of watches, whether they're vintage, uh, different brands. Uh, because the great thing about what we do is it covers 400 years of history, right? So I, I really miss that. And um, yeah, I, I enjoyed my time there. I did. It was it was terrific. And the people there, uh, you know, exceptional. So it was it was great. And it was it was even it was very good to work with you, John, too. Oh, it was great uh, fun. It was such a short time, but uh, fun uh, memories. What was your big takeaway from that time of your career? What what did you learn from working for Patek Philippe? I mean, I think that the biggest thing I remember when we, we went to um, on a factory visit, we went to Geneva and we spent a week uh, there and just how like the all the the staff who had lunch together. Um, and I think Mr. Stern um, hired his uh, favorite chef from Geneva to work in the factory. I don't know. It was just like sort of being part of a family. That was my most sort of uh, memorable um, part of working there, I think, you know, and, and just getting to go to the museum and, and looking at things that nobody else could and going. I remember we, we were able to go into the, the room with all the um, uh, handwritten journals from, from back from 1839. So they had all of the... Do you remember? I can't remember what the room's called, but it, they have all the handwritten notes from back then with the movement numbers and case numbers. And I remember Marguerite allowing me to look on the computer and she said, okay, you can search one reference number. It'll be exactly how many were made and everything. So, so that was very enjoyable. And like you said, your path brought you back to the, the auction world. And uh, while it's fresh in your mind, because this just happened, I mean, it was last, mm. uh, just April, a couple months ago, you had a stellar record sale in in hong kong and uh, in particular with the uh Nevadian collection can you share some uh stories from that sale uh second um some of your favorite pieces from that sale and and last was that the last time you'll be at the rostrum for an auction i think so unless we have we introduce a live auctioneer on loop this but as yes as far as i know that is going to be my last uh auction so the collection before anything was sold um the owner i think he had over 400 pateks um at one point he had almost every single reference number they'd ever made and you know the collector as, as well john i mean he's a, a very eccentric man um and back in the late 90s was the biggest buyer in the world for sure for, for watches and he had the means to just buy whatever he wanted and it never stopped i mean he had a preference for uh 1518s and 2499s. And I think at the height of his collection, he had um, 18 2499s, I think, every series. And he had 
so a pink second. He had two pink third series at one point. Um, and I think he had about 14, 15, 18. And it was amazing just seeing them all sitting there. And they all just slept together for years and years and years on the, um, in, in the US. And yeah, I mean, the sale, the sale was great. I mean, one big surprise we had, I think, there were three collectors who, who really tried to buy as much as they could on the pink 2499 Gobi. We had six bidders on, on that watch. So that was uh, quite interesting. And the underbidder uh, was from uh, mainland China. And he registered 20 minutes before the sale. So that was, a, that was a big surprise. But yeah, I mean, the collector, whenever, so he had the world record price for 2499 when he sold the Asprey um, back in 2018. And then he, you know, had the world record price for a pink third series. Um, he's now got the world record price for any 50, any 2499. So, um, so he still has, has some watches, uh, in his collection. But yeah, very, and he would only ever wear the same 1518. On one wrist and a Lange uh, Saxomax Perpetual on the other, and he used to say, "You know, I can't see read the time on the fifteen eighteen, but the Lange is nice and big, so I can see the time." Oh, can you yeah. share his bidding strategy? That's one of my favorite things about the Novadian. Yes, he would just say, "You know, I if I wanted something, I would just keep my paddle up and would, wouldn't put it down." He also has um, a, a phobia about um, used banknotes, so he he can't use uh, money that has been used before. So his assistant will go to the, the the bank every week and get him like his freshly cut bills that he uses throughout the week and everything. So you can't make these things up. That's what's so incredible about the watch world. I uh, I adore that story. I, I can just imagine the stories you can't tell. What's the one story on your mind that you really shouldn't be telling us and sharing with the world today? I've done a phone bid for Mick Jagger, which was quite cool. But one one story is I I, have, I found a, a 1463 in steel retail by Tiffany in Seattle. A lady, um, sort of quite um, from humble means, I think she was a car mechanic living in a, a, a trailer park. Um, she went to a yard sale in Seattle and bought this box of steel parts for her business. Um, and in the bottom of the box was a steel watch. She didn't think much of it, put it to one side. Anyway, a year later, came uh, came across it again and uh, d- realized that the dial was signed Tiffany. So she thought maybe it's worth something. So then she um, showed it to a local watchmaker. He informed her that, yes, it's also signed Patek Philippe and it has Breguet numerals. She found her way to us. I flew to visit her. But when I went to visit her, she obviously researched it and realized what it was worth. She had the watch in her bra. So- so we sat down and she hand in bra, watch out and gave it to me. <laughs> so, it was so that was um, interesting too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the great thing about auction is the variety of people that you meet, um, you know, from all, all walks of life. So, so yes. Within auction circles, you're well known for your dedication 24-7 to your collectors, something I think everyone uh, expects you'll continue to do in the world of Loop This. <laughs> what is it like to work a life that is truly 24-7? And, and you're in Hong Kong, so it's truly global. If uh, someone in uh, California or New York or Europe wants to speak to you, they want access to you constantly. So what's what's that life like for you? You get used to it and it's it, it's so busy all of the time that when you're not busy, you feel like something's wrong. Like, you know, you have a day off and you just become, yeah, you just become work obsessed. But no, I mean, it's, you know, somebody, um, when I first started doing this, they said to me, look, auction is, is basically you're juggling glass balls. Make sure you don't drop the most important one. 
So I don't know why that's always stuck with me. So, you know, there's just so much going on all the time. We were, I mean, at Sotheby's, we were selling 4,000 watches a year. Any way that a, you can sell a watch, we were doing it. So we had live auctions, online auctions, buy it now, um, private sales. We were doing pop-ups because auction, uh, sorry, watches at auction is sort of like a great entry-level category. So typically, you know, every auction, 50% of the bidders are, are new. Um, and then hopefully the auction house hopes that they go on and buy other categories. Um, but whatever like new initiative would come up, it would usually be watches would be um, asked to be the guinea pig. So like there's a pop-up in Southampton. Okay, let's get a selection of watches. Or And remember, like during COVID, we were doing the weekly watch auctions. You know, that was kind of interesting and, and fun as well. So the great thing about auction that I really enjoyed was the when you, you find a great watch, uh, you, you get to research it, to catalog it, to photograph it. You then get to sell it. Hopefully it makes a great price. And then you have a happy buyer and a happy consigner. That's kind of like a very rewarding, um, a very rewarding thing. Sam, you're also a poet. I don't know if you recall saying this to me. Gosh, it would have been like three and a half years ago. We had a conversation and we we're just talking about the auction world and leaving the auction world. And you got you you, you got very uh, very poetic with me. And this visual description of the auction world is a picture it as a glass of water. And you put your hand in that glass of water, and that's you. You remove your hand from the glass of water, and it immediately is filled in, and it's still a full glass of water. Do you remember saying that to me? Yes, my professor at school told me that. He's, he, like, he said to the class one day, look, one of the students was being really arrogant and like, you know, I know it all and everything. He's like, look, whenever you guys leave a company and you think that they're going to miss you, I want you to take a bucket of water put your fist in it and remove it. And the size of the hole that's left is how much the company will miss you when you leave. So that always stuck with me. I don't know why, but... That but visual, yeah. since you shared that with me, it's just lived with me for right. constantly. And uh, thank you for sharing it. But here's the beauty of what you're doing next. I'm going to return the favor with some reverse poetry. I'll try. It, <laughs> it's not poetry. It's a reverse visual. Is now with you would loop this. It might be a, a smaller bucket, but by putting your hand in that bucket, the, the, the water will overflow and you have systems in place to catch that water that will overflow. And I just think the bucket's going to get bigger and bigger and, and the ocean is your future. And uh, congratulations on this very bold departure and this, this new initiative. No, thank you, John. Um, very much. Thank you. With that, with that line of questions, we'll come back to you later, Sam. We're going to move on to the one and only Justin Grunberg. Uh, so thank you for being up, and I hope you have a cup of coffee in front of you. So first, I'll, I'll share your uh, biography. Uh, Justin graduated from the Eugene Lang College of Liberal Arts at the New School in New York City. He was enrolled in the Media Studies program, but spent most of his time scouring Craigslist and eBay for watch deals. Justin was about 15 years old when he bought his first collectible watch at auction, his winning bid for the vintage Patek Philippe chronograph was just over $100,000. Not bad for a kid. Uh, the first watch he bought for personal use was a Rolex 1680 sub. And uh, he today prefers to collect time-only watches. Even your biography is humble, Justin. And, and we're going to talk about that. I'm just recalling the first time I met you. Uh, it was thanks to our mutual friend, Mike Manjos at that time at Betteridge and, and now at Watchbox. 
And I remember how he described you to me. He's like, he's like, Justin controls the marketplace. That should be on your business card. He's like, he's, he's the man behind the curtain, the wizard. And uh, people to this day always have discussed the words Justin Grugberg, your name, Justin Grugberg, always with honesty, integrity, and intelligence. And it's, uh, it's just an incredible accomplishment in the brutal world of uh, the watch world that you've um, remained completely unscathed and you've helped so many people, including everyone on this call, many of our listeners, including me in this industry. And I just want to uh, personally thank you for that and thank you for really raising the bar in the watch world in terms of honesty, transparency, and really having passion about everything you do. I just completely went away from my script, but welcome, Justin. I, I can't believe that it was actually, now that you mentioned that that's how we met, it brings back this memory that we had, that I had, that probably like, like 2013, when you, st- when you were working at Betteridge, um, Mike told me that you were uh, coming to work for them. And you being this mythological, patically wealth of knowledge, uh, I was like, uh-oh, now there goes my opportunity to buy these great paddocks that I've been buying from them for quite some time. And I remember at that time, before these trade shows, they would send out a list to a handful of dealers as to what they were going to bring to the show um, on an Excel sheet. And I remember seeing this paddock Philippe, Platinum, Tiffany and Company, 1950s diamond watch. And I was like, what, what could it possibly be? And when I got to the show in, in this pile of stuff, there was this 2496, a rectangular uh, baguette diamond uh, watch on an original Tiffany band. And I was thinking to myself, thank God John Reardon didn't come to this show because I, I would never have had the opportunity to buy it. He would have for sure shown it to a collector that he already had. Uh, so that was like my first idea of John. And I was like, this couldn't, this couldn't be a better time to, to not come to the show. Can't wait to meet you. And here we are, uh, me being able to, that's like the dealer kind of mentality. Uh, little did I know um, after that show, we'd become close friends where I would call you, you know, at least once a month to ask you particular questions about um, the nuances of, of paddock. Um, so I appreciate all the help you've, you've also lended to me throughout this whole time. Oh, uh, thank, thank you, Justin. You never shared that story with me before. So greatly appreciated. And to this day, I instill fear in horological circles. Coincidentally, now that, now that I realize it, I actually bought the watch and consigned it to Sam Hines when he was at, at Christie's at the time. So it all, it all goes f- full circle, you know. And, and um, Eric probably bought it. Yeah, no, I actually, bought it, I actually bought it back at Christie's last year. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> full yeah. circle. You know, you remind me of those, uh, we'll call it the betterage years, the IWJG in particular, um, when uh, our mutual friend uh, Rich Lopez uh, was with, uh, with Mike. And before each of the I- IWJG shows, there would always be the meeting in the hotel room. The night before each of the shows, before everything was um, put out for all of the dealers to, to feast on, there was always these uh, secret, uh, uh, we'll call them bedroom meetings because that's exactly what it was, where all of the watches from Betteridge were put out in the bed 
And then there was a circle of dealers, a very close inner circle of friends that would have first dibs. Uh, can you share some stories from the bedroom? I mean, it, it's, it sounds as, uh, as ridiculous as it was. Um, at the time, he would basically um, gather five or 10 of us uh, the, the day before uh, the IWJG show, like you said, and we would, they would lay out hundreds of watches that they had taken in trade or purchased um, throughout that month. And all of us would basically grab handfuls of watches to get prices on um, from them, which at the time there was just such an appetite for, you know, all different brand pre not, not there isn't now, but we were, we were extremely, maybe I wouldn't be on somebody else's bed scouring through watches this day, these days, but at the time it was such an exciting thing, which was actually the show happened before the show, um, where you, you would actually know like how well you did at that show based on what happened in the Betteridge hotel room the night before. Um, so for us, it was um, an exciting time. Seems rather ridiculous, but maybe in 20 years from now, uh, I'll be doing it again. I, I'm not any better than that, and I love the I love that moment, and that's probably what you know gave me so much uh, excitement. You know, I, I think you need to have on your site a, a new subsection, which is password protected, which is called Loop This in the bedroom, and we get. Early access to what you're offering. No, not going to happen. Maybe. I remember Ira Schneider was sometimes. Remember, I hope Ira's all right. I haven't heard from him in years. I mean, he, he was a legend uh, it was like 20 years ago. And I remember he would be like strewn out on the bed next to the watches. <laughs> so, he could just feel, reach out. Feel good, feel good watches. Yeah, I, I never thought of that. Yeah, his company was feelgoodwatches.com. All right, we're going to leave it at that. What's it like working with family? Uh, I every time I've visited you in uh, in, in LA, you, you, your father's there, your uncle's there, and it's always buzzing with activity. And you seem to work in perfect harmony with family, which is something that often does not happen. Can Can you share some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just as anybody that um, that works in a father son business or a family business, they know that. Um, you know, there, there are times that things are great and there are times that, you know, there's a lot of struggle. I think my dad tells a story that when he went to lease the um, Beverly Drive location from the previous tenant who were jewelers and coin dealers, when he walked in, they were throwing uh, candy and coins at each other, the father and son. Um, and they're both on the floor laid out uh, while he was viewing the property to see if he should rent it. And I think he explains that story as to show me what things could look like if it gets really bad. And we basically uh, unofficially decided from the time I started that he would do jewelry and I would do watches. Um, that was kind of our way of um, delegating um, what we do and also probably some type of self-preservation so we don't end up like the previous tenant on Beverly Drive. So um, with that being said, uh, you know, we work so close to each other. There are times that, that you know, you, you get into, you know, issues as you would with anyone uh, that you work so close with occasionally. But, um, you know, with being a father and son business, there, there are certain things that um, are kind of that, unlike anything. And, and obviously, like a lot of the things that I know 
uh, and that I've been taught ethics wise have been have been from him. So without that foundation, I, I don't I don't really know where I'd be. So um, yeah, like you, your father is a legend in the field. He's been doing it a bit longer than you have too. Can you share a couple things that your your dad has taught you about this business? Yeah, I mean, I think he, he instilled in me from the time I started to not be worried about making mistakes. Um, I, I was told uh, that if you're not making mistakes, that you're not doing enough business. Um, and I, I kind of taken that, uh, you know, from the beginning to uh, I'm never worried about, um, you know, overpaying for something. Or um, because I know that as a dealer, uh, there's an exit strategy. Whether you you know whether you're making money or losing money, occasionally you can always move forward. Um, and we have the luxury of being able to you know buy and sell a lot of things. So you know as long as you're you know a high probability is that you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna make a profit. Occasionally you make a mistake, and you, the best thing you can do is move on. And he also told me a story that. Um, when he was on on a different part of Beverly Drive, that he bought a watch, a rectangular paddock fleet, um, and he showed it to my uncle Doug, who at the time was like, How, "Why would you buy this? It's it has moon phase, but it's it's not a perpetual." And he paid seventy five hundred at the time. He brought it to several shows, and everyone was telling him, "This is not even a perpetual. What? It's an annual calendar. Why would you buy that watch?" So after six months, he decided he's going to just dump it at this show. It was probably an NAWCC show at the time. And he tried to get 7000 and then six. Finally, he sold it for 5000 uh, And then it turned out to be a one-of-a-kind watch that a couple of months later, six months later, traded hands to an Italian dealer for around 100000 um, And now it's in the museum uh, as a very famous watch. And he said to himself, after that point, he'll never panic out of anything. Um, so I think that's, as a dealer, it's a good lesson to learn. I think the Patek Philippe Museum has to put a plaque and rename it the Grunberg. It should, it should be renamed. And truly, mistakes are wonderful opportunities to learn. And uh, the best in the business, they've made plenty of mistakes. Now, you sell to both dealers and collectors. Do you have a preference of who you work with and and what percentage of your time in a day is dedicated to these different types of buyers? Um, you know, I have no preference in terms of dealers or collectors. I, I actually kind of, you know, all day long, I'm talking to both of them on the phone. Um, I find that like you can have a dealer that um, should be paying 500% more than the retail price because they will drive you crazy. Um, and you can, on the, on the opposite end, you can have a, a collector that is so knowledgeable and so specific about what they're looking for that they're they're extremely easy and pleasant to deal with on a daily basis and they have some of them have an appetite to purchase more watches throughout the year than a dealer would um so for me it's more about the personal relationship with whoever it might be and i don't really tend to favor uh dealers opposed to uh to collectors yeah. uh, well said and uh Good segue to that clock that you're. It's right behind you. the The green uh, solar clock. Uh, uh, how much do you want for it? Because uh, I think I would like to buy it during this podcast. So. <laughs> the, the bad thing about having, you know, I um, I have an obsessive personality. So 
you can see that there's a green one, I have a red one and a blue one and a wood one. And I think like as a, uh, you know, obviously I wear the dealer hat, but any uh, strong dealer, I think has a collecting uh, tendency. Um, I think Eric can, can kind of lend it more to that. Um, but I've, when I ever see, whenever I see something I like, I, I have to have it. I always regretted what I didn't buy, not what I did buy. Um, so, you know, with that comes a ton of objects that, uh, you know, I, like this clock, I wouldn't sell for any amount of money for some reason. And, uh, but, you know, if you ever show me something that I might trade for, you never know. I'll keep that in mind. Last question, Justin, treasure hunting stories. Now, Sam set the bar high with uh, bras full of uh, watches, but uh, you have a ton of stories yourself. Is there any you could share with us? I wouldn't say that like my, my treasure hunting story isn't like anything where I, you know, flew to, you know, Syria to buy some watch or something like that. Um, I would say that like what gave me the bug to be a watch dealer from the beginning, I wasn't necessarily from like you know, my dad or anything like that. Actually, I was repulsed by the idea for a while of doing, you know, the same thing that my dad did. Um, so I think that when I first started, I um, would call when I was on summer break, I called like, must have been 50 pawn shops in Los Angeles. And I was like, what do you have in, you know, plastic crystal Rolex GMTs or Samariners? And 49 of the people would say, I had one yesterday, but I sold it. Or all of those I sell to this guy. You would never pay as much as he paid. Finally, I call one in the valley and he's like, I have this one with the blue and red uh, bezel. If you want to come out and look at it, I'll look at it. So at the time, uh, I was a lot more ambitious. And I got in the car and drove an hour and 15 minutes out to this pawn shop in the valley. He's like, here it is. You know, I didn't know 1675, 16750, all these like nuances, reloom dials, unpolished cases. This was 2008, 2009. Um, I didn't know any of those nuances, but I, I bought the watch from him um, for, I think it was around $2,000. The market was probably $3,000. And I was just so thrilled by the idea of like this, this feeling of treasure hunting uh, where you can like even 49 times I'd strike out, but that one time uh, being able to, to find this thing that I've been looking for um, was just like what gave me the bug to kind of keep everything going. Um, and since that point, I haven't, I haven't stopped uh, looking for things. Um, it's kind of in our DNA uh, as like, searchers and hoarders, I guess. So it's it's not a watch that is of particular value, but for me, it's of a lot of significance uh, in terms of like giving me the um, the confidence and also the, the, the ability to feel like I could keep going and, and doing this for a living. Your words will resonate the feeling we have when we find that watch and in, in, in the hunt and the chase and sometimes it takes years. Uh, and it's funny how those watches that sometimes get away sometimes come back. I I, I love stories of the, uh, the the watches that go full circle. And I imagine in your world, you've probably sold a couple pieces multiple times. Definitely, um, I I've had um, you know watches two, three, four times the same watch. Like each time, it it seems to be more expensive. 
uh, and it keeps getting better and better. Um, so I think that like that's just the nature of of trading and objects in general. And I think like uh, you you start to begin to understand how rare things are when you start to see like the same uh, the same watch uh, years later, and you haven't seen another watch of that that model or that variation before. So. Um, Cartier is a perfect example of that. It's like when you see a watch in a, in a Sotheby's catalog in 1990, uh, and you see it, it again, it could be 20 years later, it's probably the same watch because truly a rare, um, you know, a rare era and a rare brand um, to collect. So for me, uh, I, I love like kind of tracking those things. Uh, it's, uh, that's where data comes in. We'll talk about that. We uh, we'll loop this shortly. But Justin, thank you for uh, answering the first round of questions so brilliantly. And now, last but not least, Eric Ku. Eric, it's such a pleasure to finally have you on the collectability podcast that's uh thank you for having all of us oh it's so great to have the whole team on board and uh i'm gonna kick it off with your official bio and and then we'll uh, start the line of questioning eric ku started heading towards what hodinki calls super dealer status back in 2002 when he clinched a deal to buy 25 sports rolex watches including daytona's subs and comex sea dwellers but his interest in watch trading really began when he studied at UC Berkeley in 97. In 2005, he launched his 10 past 10 website with the property made from a Sotheby's auction. Eric's current horological interests include, loop this, vintage Rolex forums, 10 past 10, and California-based company, LA Watch Works. You're, you're truly a mogul across all segments of the industry. And it is, like I said before, absolute pleasure having you with us today. So welcome, Eric. Now, you're a very public figure in the watch world and you've, you've seen it all. Um, and uh, you're no stranger to podcasts either. So I want to ask you some questions that you haven't answered publicly before. And I know you'll answer with total honesty. Please share with us a, a big mistake you made and what you learned from it. Uh, Justin had mentioned that you know, the biggest mistakes are like the watches that you don't buy. It's never like you overpaid for something. And I kind of, I feel the same. I can think of several instances specifically where I didn't buy something because I thought it was too expensive and, uh, you know, immediately regretted it afterwards. And uh, there's been cases where that's happened and I've bought what I missed for significantly more money um, or just, you know, lost out completely. But Really, it's like that uh, saying, like, uh, you only miss the shots you don't take. And I think, like, for me, uh, business-wise, it's really, you know, letting something really great go. I think that's always like a uh, lapse in judgment, you know. The price, I, I don't know. This is like uh, one of these uh, watchisms that's floating around out there all the time. It's like you only uh, – the price only hurts when you're writing the check is one of these sayings. And I, I kind of agree with that. I mean – uh, really great things are hard to find and they are, um, you know, yeah, they're just really hard to find. And I've learned over time that the regrets that I've had in the business are always things that I, I ended up not buying. Now, your words really resonate with me because there's been numerous occasions where you step up 
to write a check and it, it really hurts. But then maybe a couple of days later, it sinks in what you paid for that piece. And you're like, you know, it's, it's worth absolutely every penny. And auction buyers feel that, dealers feel that, everyone feels that at some point. I mean, a uh, really quick anecdote here. Justin was talking about all these great IWJG watch show stories, right? And I remember going to one show, um, I don't know, this is maybe 10 years ago. And uh, it's always like the pre-show, you know, like when you're waiting in line, it's like, hey, what do you got in your bag there? Like, you know, trying to do deals the night before or whatever. And this guy had a new old stock uh, Rolex Red Submariner that was uh, sold to the uh, um, the FAP, the Peruvian Air Force. Box, papers, everything. The watch was brand new, never sized, unworn, insane. And uh, I got to it a little bit late. And then this other dealer had it in his hands already. And I remember thinking, this is when, I don't know, Red Submariners were like $8,000, okay? He wanted $16,000 for the watch. And the person in front of me had it in his hands, and I was just like salivating there, like hoping that something uh, would go wrong. And then the guy's like, best I could do is 15. And then he says, no, I need 16. And as soon as he put it down, before it even hit the table, I just grabbed it from his hands and bought it, you know? And, uh, you know, that's like the perfect example of really exceptional things. They're worth any price, honest, honestly. And, um, you know, in that case, it went in my favor. But I've lost out on things too because of uh, being a little foolish with the pricing. But we're seeing in the marketplace, and I'll dig in this later too, the best pieces keep bringing more. The, the better the quality, the more the rarity, but condition is everything. We're seeing unbelievable prices um, being sold both publicly and private, privately. What Can you comment on condition in the marketplace and how that plays with with rarity? I mean, truly exceptional condition, I think, can be like a multiplier in the value of things. It could go up like exponentially, to be honest. Um, I think of some things, um, you know, on on Loop This, for example, we've sold a few kind of like new old stock watches that have gone for really exceptionally high prices uh, just because of the condition. Um, we've seen things in auction this year at Sotheby's, uh, that pink on pink fifteen eighteen. You know, um, that sold for $10 million. I mean, that is an absolutely insane price. At the time, maybe it was five times more than what a pink on pink 1518 normally goes for, but it was five times the watch, and you're never going to see anything like that again. Um, I was discussing with uh, Logan from Houdinki about that watch recently, and I think you had told him too. I, I told him this, I told him that I thought that was possibly the best Patek Philippe I've ever seen. And then he was like, oh, that's funny. I think John Reardon might have said the same thing to me. So I'm glad uh, we think alike and agree on that one. Condition is the one thing that like, look, you can service, restore a watch, do all these things. But that original condition, uh, once it's in like a lesser condition, like you can never have that back, you know? And you think of uh, even a industrially produced watch, like uh, let's take, for example, whatever, a 5.5, one three plastic crystal submariner no date right they made millions of them over the years but when you see one that's like brand new or in time capsule condition it really uh feels a lot different than one that you know is really worn or beat up you wear a number of different hats as as your your bio covered but you're also a collector in many different segments can you share some of your other passions on as a collector other categories and what you've learned 
collecting and other categories that you've brought to your watch collecting and your watch buying? I mean, I think collecting things, I started out as being kind of like a, uh, a collector of like nostalgia and stories. Everything that I collected had some kind of a, a personal tie-in or something. But, you know, as you kind of like refine your style and tastes, I think in any sort of, um, I mean, I guess art is a little different because art uh, generally is all kind of unique items. So condition, I feel like, doesn't play as much of a role. Um, but that being said, like collecting things, uh, I think really many uh, collecting many different things uh, comes down to like condition. We had conversations in the past about, I think, baseball cards. I know your uh, father collected a lot of baseball cards when he was a kid in the 50s. You know, that was something that I was really into as a kid. And uh, during the pandemic, when I had nothing to do, I started collecting like sports cards again, you know, and like coins, uh, sports cards, high value ones, people uh, slab them, they encase them in plastic. And a third party company, you know, gives it like a assigns it like a numerical grade. And, um, you know, there's two main grading companies, there's one called Beckett and one uh, called PSA. Uh, PSA, which uh, was a publicly traded company, I think it was taken private again recently. You know, something that scores uh, 10 on the PSA scale, which is like gem mint, they call, is a significant multiplier higher in value than like a nine. So, um, you know, like what we're talking about, about condition, you could have a um, like a Michael Jordan rookie card in a 10 condition be worth three, four hundred thousand dollars in a nine, it would be worth like 30,000. So we're talking about like a 10 X, the holy grail of collecting. I'm sure your dad would tell you too, is like a 1952 tops Mickey Mantle card. It's like the first uh, mainstream tops issue. And obviously Mickey Mantle's a rookie. There's one PSA 10 known to exist. And, um, you know, people keep saying that it's like a $30 million baseball card. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, maybe it'll come up for sale at some point. You know, $30 million for a baseball card is quite a lot of money, you know. That's extraordinary. But I think your comments on the multiplier effect are very much in the psyche of watch buyers today in terms of condition. I mean, uh, tying it back to you, John, with like uh, Patek Philippe's, you know, condition really means everything, right? And you see, like, for example... Not my particular favorite watch, but like a 1526, the, you know, the perpetual, right? They usually have mega over polished lugs. I mean, they literally look like toothpicks, you know? And then one time, I forget what auction, but I saw one that was really in exceptional condition. And it rewrote what I thought that watch should look like because all the ones that I've seen or most of the ones that I've seen have really soft lugs and kind of like a uh, a wash dial that's kind of like very eggshelly and faded looking. But I saw one with really thick lugs and, you know, a really nice dial and it changed my perception of that watch immediately. And they feel bigger on the wrist when they're unpolished. Uh, yeah. And yeah. They, they do. They change the whole, whole aesthetic. Or even like a 130 chrono. Like, you know, a lot of times those have super polished lugs too. Uh, and 1579s and 1578s, I mean, they make such a difference when they're unpolished. It's, I think, yeah. one of those beautiful references ever. But once it's polished a couple times, even once, just yeah. doesn't have that that magic. During the pandemic, things changed really fast for all of us. A lot of things went online. And there were a number of uh, chat rooms that rose in the world of uh, WhatsApp <laughs> in, in particular. 
if you're comfortable sharing some stories of how did you see the dealer business move towards technology, specifically towards WhatsApp in the heart of the pandemic? I mean, I think us dealers are a uh, resourceful batch. We'll always find some way to engage in commerce and whether it's uh, losing money on every watch you sell or just keeping busy is always like a good thing, right? And like you said, I think during the pandemic, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, we all of our schedules kind of revolved around trade shows, right? IWJG show was 13 times a year. I don't know why they stuffed that one extra show in, but it was always like a pain in the ass. And like the day after Thanksgiving or the day after New Year, they would do like an extra show. And, you know, we were beholden to this travel schedule of going to Miami, Vegas, New York every month and seeing all of us more than our families going to these shows and doing whatever. So when travel stopped, I mean, uh, business stopped for a little bit, but um, the slack was picked up by various uh, dealer uh, chat groups, you know, predominantly on WhatsApp, like you said. And, um, you know, a lot of stuff was getting done there. You know, um, we were selling things, buying and selling back and forth and um, able to do it from our homes, you know. So I think that really changed a lot. And I know uh, we like to think right now we're emerging out of this uh, post-pandemic world right now. Um, but, you know, nothing is still exactly like back to normal. Um, I don't know about you guys, um, but I know for Justin too. I mean, you know, Justin and his dad, they used to have the big table in the corner on the right, right when you walk into every show. I don't think they've done an IWJG show <laughs> in like two and a half years. I know I haven't gone to one in two and a half years. And these shows are just, you know, unfortunately, they're just not as important as they used to be, you know? I mean, we are conducting business on a daily basis with each other. Uh, virtually. And um, that is just a much more efficient way of doing things than seeing each other once a month. Do you ever feel, for example, if you're on a long phone call or a podcast, for example, that that big watch might have just went across the WhatsApp group and you missed it? Do you ever feel a regret that you're not checking every minute? Not really. I mean, um, I used to be a lot more, uh, I don't know, I used to be jonesing for the deal a lot more. Now I think um, things have settled a little bit and I feel um, you know, pretty happy with the way that everything goes. And I don't have that urge to constantly check my phone. Um, but it has happened. I mean, you know, great things have shown up. A great deal for a dealer is always about like information asymmetry, right? Like you're buying some quote unquote used old watch from somebody that sells new things that doesn't know that that could be like a million dollar thing or whatever, you know? And with the chats, the other interesting thing too is, is like, you're kind of put on the clock, right? If somebody posts something that's like really great, you have to act quickly because somebody else will buy it too. So, um, you know, I, I kind of like that, uh, like that element of, of uh, the way that we've been doing business these days. It's interesting. And I have to thank you, Eric, for helping me navigate the dealer world because there's this own, I'll call it a code of ethics that the way the dealers work, which may not be uh, the typical ethics that you would see. <laughs> In normal business dealings, um, in terms of the language, the speed, the the trust, and the way that deals are, are consummated, could you share some stories of of the code, in your opinion, of how business is done between dealers in America and and globally? It's really interesting. I I've got you know over the years I've um, uh, been work been fortunate to work with a lot of uh, collectors. And uh, especially ones, you know, who are really focused on buying, 
you know, like the knee plus ultra, like super high end watches. Right. And, um, you know, our world is so archaic in that we sell potentially million dollar, multi-million dollar objects, like on the shake of a hand, there's no contract, there's no like anything. Um, you know, a lot of times people ask for terms for payment, which more often than not we give and everything is done on the shake of a hand. And because of that, like things go bad, you know, unfortunately lawsuits happen from time to time, you know, besides like litigation, uh, you know, slow paying, all these type of things happen, right? So, you know, when you mentioned like code of ethics, I mean, there should be a professional code of ethics in our industry, right? I mean, things that I just think of off the top of my head is, is like, you shouldn't really talk bad about other people, the dealers, you uh, shouldn't try to steal clients, you should conduct yourself with integrity, you know, all these type of things, which um we should do but not everybody does do it's really funny i mean uh there's plenty of stories a one really important watch that we were buying one time this is pretty funny but justin and i were involved in this deal buying like a very important um expensive watch that was posted in a chat room and um we had agreed to buy it the deal was done but then behind the scenes you have all these like uh the these people that didn't get a chance to buy it messaging the seller like i'll pay more i'll do that i'll pay double like you idiot what are you doing you know all these type of things going on right and then the guy was like kind of like waffling around on this deal trying to back out and think of all these things telling us these crazy stories about how like oh i didn't have the right to sell it like somebody came to my house in the middle of the night wanted to take the watch back all this nonsense right the the seller of this watch was uh was based in the middle east and, um, you know, we have a lot of friends in that area, like other dealers and, you know, people that work in the trade there that uh, this seller knew. And then, um, you know, that guy, I don't know, it was really funny, but he he called the uh, the dealer and it was like, you can't back out on these guys. Like, don't you know how important they are? Like, if you don't uh, sell it to them, you'll never be able to do business again. And then like, uh, like, it was just like, half joking nonsense i don't even know what happened but he was like the fbi is gonna find out like your poster is gonna be at like the check-in kiosk at like the 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 airport like you're never gonna be able to travel again whatever and then the guy's like oh my god and then sold us the watch this is like pretty funny like we didn't tell anybody to lie about this and i don't think he believed that but it was just like really funny how small this world is and I, I think really like with dealers, especially it's a very small world. We all know everybody. We have this, we share clients. We share, uh, both clients buying and selling from, and the world is like really small, you know? So every time you say something in confidence, it's never really in confidence. You know, what goes around comes around. And I mean, uh, everybody talks about everything. So I think that's just something that everybody needs to know about. It's it's such a small world and uh, I mean, we see it every day with the forms of communication going around the world so quickly. And I'm going to ask your advice uh, right now because this happens more and more and more with collectability because we're out there with an educational mission. So, people and consumers and collectors are sending pictures of watches and they're like, hey, John, what do you, what do you think of this watch? Can I have your opinion on the on what you think of the dial here are some high res pictures i used to always answer all of those messages but i'll tell you nine times out of ten they take my comments which are completely subjective and i write every disclaimer because i haven't seen the watch in person and forward it to the auction house or the dealer they bought it from and it's such a small community 
the, the feedback loop uh, is endless. So I've learned I just don't comment on anyone else's watches, period. I would love your advice as a leading Rolex authority in the world. How do you handle that when people reach out to you? I mean, it's like a similar thing. I used to be a lot more candid about things and fire these like off the cuff remarks that ended up coming back to me like, hey, why did you say this? You know, but look, everybody has a different idea of like quality. Um, And I think, you know, when you buy things from a generalist, let's say, you know, what I consider to be uh, average condition, they're going to say something like, oh, this is an excellent condition or something like that, you know. Um, I try not to um, put my nose into things like uh, too much these days and get myself in trouble. You know, I um, I sell things and people come to me for advice, which um, more often than not, I'm still happy to give. I I, uh, I agree with you that there's like a lot of politics involved and I try to uh, stay above that. Especially if there's um, a collector you've never heard from before who's just asking yeah. questions very specifically. And uh... look, we talked about legal situations, right? I mean, I know of a case where somebody sent like pictures of a watch to like 10 dealers and then try to like bundle all these things up to use in some kind of like court proceedings or something, you know, you know, we're, we're in a world that is uh, not heavily regulated. And I think, um, you know, it's just, it's a very, um, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's quite lawless out there, you know, and it's hard to uh, impose your own exacting standards on uh, on everything because not everybody operates in the same way, you know. Pivot from the wild west of the watch industry to um, a more uh, august institution, the Horological Society of New York. You, you are on the board. You've been a longtime supporter of the HSNY. As have you, John. And you're also a big supporter of the industry of watchmaking and uh, and, and truly... With LA Watchworks, I mean, you're you're in the industry and you are the industry. What is the state of watchmaking today in America and, and globally? I mean, it's really uh, quite a sad thing. But I think over the last many years, um, people generally are not as interested in um, traditional like trades, if you will. And um, you can see that a lot in uh, the state of watchmaking right now. The major programs, obviously, like Lilith's, Pennsylvania, and then uh, Seattle School of Watchmaking, they graduate out aggregate, I think, maybe 30 uh, watchmakers a year. And uh, these are the two main accredited programs in the United States. And so imagine, like, you know, we're like a really big country. We're one of the largest uh, consumers of, uh, you know, Swiss watches and watches in general in the world. And we have, um, you know, 30-something watchmaking candidates a year to, like, add into our pool of jobs. It's really sad because of those 30-something, I'd say probably 80% of them, 90% of them go work for brands. And then, you know, there's, like, a handful left that might, you know, open their own shop, go work for an independent or something like that. Um, You know, I see with Los Angeles Watchworks, you know, we're always trying to hire watchmakers. Um, if we could find 20 qualified watchmakers or even 50 or whatever, I would hire every single one of them. But it's just really difficult to find candidates these days. And um, this is going to be a problem. You know, one of the things that uh, we've been working on at the HSNY, as you know, is like outreach and trying to get more people involved in the industry and trying to attract more young people into the uh, the world of uh, watchmaking, you know, to hopefully bump these numbers up and have uh, – 
uh, more candidates uh, going into the schools and graduating. The result, though, is the uh, starting salary of a watchmaker is quite impressive. And uh, the schooling is typically free. And it's an attractive value proposition for many new newly minted watchmakers. But people, aren't, they're not getting the message uh, outside of our community. Uh, I don't think uh, if you ask a go to a high school, ask how many kids want to be a watchmaker when they grow up, you're going to get many uh, people raising their hand. So I, I hope our common mission of all of us to attract more to this industry. Uh, I hope the word gets out there one one step at a time. Agreed, agreed. Um, I mean, historically, I think watchmakers have been woefully underpaid. You know, I think things are changing in that uh, area, as you just mentioned. And um, I think it's a, it's a great career for people to be involved in. Thank you, Eric. I'm, I'm now going to open it up to the floor. We're going to move to the, the roundtable uh, part of our, our conversation. And this is the big question on all of our minds. Here we are, summer 2022. There's a lot going on in the world right now. And that's an understatement. What is the state of the market? And uh, I'll just open it up to the floor. Um, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, auction auctions that we've seen um i mean there was a sale in new york yesterday at sotheby's that did exceptionally well i mean surprisingly well there are certain areas of the market that are are softening um like um take the uh, contemporary and we all know this the contemporary sports watches and steel by patek or rolex i guess they've corrected maybe 30 percent in the past couple of weeks um but then like you were all talking about earlier condition trophy watches are are continuing to increase so I think the rarer something is, there is still a, a very healthy market, but it's very volatile. I mean, what do you what do you guys think? I mean, I would say that over the last month, you've seen a a lot of the speculative uh, collectors um, have have disappeared from the market um, over the last three four years, particularly exploding during COVID. You saw a lot of people enter the market um, expecting to have major returns on their both retail and gray market purchases of primarily Rolex uh, Patek Nautilus, Rolex Daytonas, um, some Royal Oaks. Um, and you see those watches uh, really correcting in terms of price as they were, you know, they gained so much value in the last two years um, that anyone that has been doing this for a good amount of time would know that this was bound to happen. Uh, but with that being said, if an important watch comes up to auction, um, I don't think it would bring any less of a price now than it would have a year ago uh, because the collectors are buying all year round and are looking for important things all year round. Um, and it's just a matter of when it comes up. Uh, I don't think that the overall market has corrected. I think that the, the market has corrected in terms of watches that were already overhyped. There's definitely, uh, I think there's a bit of a Genta fatigue right now, if you will. We had all these uh, anniversaries of things for the last, it's been like this uh, five-year um, parade of like Gerald, Genta, this and that. And, um, you know, things are kind of settling down, you know. Um, that being said, is it really a, uh, you know, like things have gone down, but they're still up, you know. Uh, a Nautilus 5711 I think uh, a normal blue dial one maybe hit Zenith pricing of about, I don't know, 190, 200,000 at one point. And then now we're maybe in the low 100s, right? Um, but that's still more than triple what the retail price is, you know? So um, 
you have to keep things in perspective. I think they're still very hot commodities. It's just uh, people are constantly pushing the envelope when it comes to pricing. And uh, I, I think that, you know, um, the market has pushed back a bit. Um, that being said, you know, if we had, let's say, I don't know, a platinum 3,700 Nautilus come up for auction right now, I'm pretty sure it would still set a record price. It wouldn't be lower than the last one that sold. So, you know, rare things are still highly coveted. The market is uh, a lot more like self-policing, I'd say. You know, like uh, it, it's uh, it's not easy to like pull the wool over everybody's eyes. So like anybody always trying to do whatever shenanigans, I feel like uh, it's very difficult in this day and age because the market uh, place for watches has matured so much. And I think the collectors are a lot more educated and uh, more astute about their purchasing decisions. In looking at the the summer auctions we've just had here in New York, Phillips Fireworks, as as we expected, uh, Christie's exceptionally solid results. But the one I was watching most closely was Sotheby's. And uh, I was a bit nervous for the market going into this sale. Sometimes there's a summer fatigue and, uh, and there might not be a lot of people in the sale room and there's a lot of factors at play. But Looking at the results at Sotheby's, they were, I, I would say, stellar overall. There were some very surprising results, uh, vintage and modern across brands. And I think that shows a, a there is a robust collecting base in this marketplace, even in difficult times. And uh, it gave me uh, a comfort in knowing that there's going to be business this summer. And uh, I think we might see some emerging trends. And, and that leads to my next question. What are the emerging trends in each of your opinions? For me, anything that wasn't hot a year ago, a year and a half ago, is hot now. Everything that was hot a year, a year and a half ago is no longer as hot. So, like, take uh, uh, Patek complicated watches, like 5016s, 5004s. Um, I see and 5970s increasing a lot. Um, so, it's sort of like everybody has sort of changed their mind and they're going for what was not hot. So it's, um, but maybe that's because the, all the hot items, the prices went out of reach. And so it's, yeah. And, and they realize how, how um, uh, inexpensive those objects are. Um, but yes, I mean, look at Sky Moon Tourbillons. I mean, they're increasing at an exceptional rate. But yeah, and I, obviously the independent um, the watch making, uh, collecting is, is going from strength to strength all the time. And it comes down to rarity, like you were uh, talking about earlier. So um, that's that's the way I see it. Um, um, and collectors are becoming more and more demanding when, in terms of condition with, with vintage watches. So uh, less forgiving for bad quality, but willing to pay much greater sums for the greatest quality. I mean, collecting is always cyclical, right? So things that are out of fashion come back in fashion and vice versa. So what are you seeing, Justin? I mean, I think that like as certain models like we were talking about before lose value, people are going to look towards other things that are not easily easy to find in the market. Uh, as you, I, I think as a dealer, I want to buy things that potentially you're not going to see a bunch of other things come up cheaper. Um, so if you if you were wanting to buy a 5711, for example, you might want to wait a little bit longer because you don't know where the market's going to end up. But if you're going to buy a 3970, uh, you're pretty sure that the market is going to stay around this level because it's not like there's a, a million other in the market um, that's going to that you're going to see a bunch come up cheaper. Uh, so I've always kind of since I started, I've always 
been someone that wanted things that other people don't have. Um, and in general, that's been a good method um, for collecting and for dealing um, because I, it wouldn't be that some other people, like there's a lot of price cutting in the market. There's always other uh, dealers that are, are going to work at a smaller margin than you're going to or lose more money than you or whatever. So I always wanted to have things that weren't easily available. Um, and that's just uh, like my method for collecting and for dealing. Very well said. And that is the perfect segue for the final component of our discussion today, which is loop this. And I'd like to share a thought because I'm seeing a trend in the industry, especially here in the States, but I think it is truly global. The auction houses are increasingly trying to be dealers, kind of reaching into the marketplace with private sales, of course, online business, and offering a bespoke service as, as a dealer would. Um, we're seeing many of the auction house um, specialists and, speci and, and their management encouraging this, this behavior. On the other hand, we're seeing a lot of dealers reaching up to become auction houses. And we're seeing, we're seeing a different type of behavior from the traditional dealing community. And I'm really just as an observer seeing loop this in that central role of that groundbreaking uh, new territory. And by hiring Sam Hines, this is just uh, like a, a nuclear announcement that you have a luminary from the auction world joining you in the dealer world with this new type of business with Loop This. Let's discuss. I mean, I feel like one of the the main like points is that we like, I think of us as there's definitely this heavy technology component. You know, we are in some ways like a, uh, like a technology company. Um, you know, we're constantly uh, working on the site, adding new features and functionality and trying to streamline the process both for consigners and for uh, buyers and just trying to make it as like frictionless as possible. You know, the other thing is, is that look, the, the three principles in the company now, uh, the three of us, you know, our backgrounds are all, um, you know, we have varied backgrounds, but at the same time, it's like all about the watches, right? So I think that we are like this company that um, has a strong focus on uh, technology, using technology to make things simpler for watch collectors buying and selling. And, um, you know, the important thing is, is that like, look, auction houses in general, the traditional ones are really uh, great, like generalists is what I'd say. They sell various different types of property. And um, they're pretty good at each thing. But, you know, for us, our main selling point is, is like, look, uh, we don't auction cars. Uh, we don't auction paintings. Um, we auction watches because the three of us are experts about watches. And that's what we know. And that's the market that we can best serve our constituents with. So, you know, I think that what we're trying to do is basically streamline the process as much as possible kind of get rid of the uh, inefficiencies in the marketplace and, uh, you know, just make the best experience both for the buyers and the sellers. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously our um, our method is, is a lot faster. 
Um, we, you know, we can list things a lot faster than a, a traditional auction house can. We can, um, you know, our communication is, is, is very fast in terms of if a, um, collector wants to consign something, uh, we respond immediately, uh, practically with a valuation, um, based on the images provided. And then within three to four weeks, it's live on our website, which I think is kind of unprecedented in this space um and then in addition to the fact that our you know our commissions are 10 percent compared to um you know the kind of average 26 percent in the auction world makes it um a, we feel a method that collectors will end up getting more money in the end and also the buyer will end up paying less in the end so it's a uh, kind of a win-win for both sides we want to make sure that all watches are like for us, the most important thing is to make sure that watches are vetted and described properly. Um, we provide like a you know, ton of imagery as you guys have seen. Um, so all of those things kind of contribute to the overall transparency of, of what, what we do. I mean, one kind of like interesting thing um, is that when you look at something like at a traditional auction house, like let's say it hammers for a hundred thousand dollars, right? Um, if it hammered for like the same amount, like on our site with this, uh, you know, greatly reduced, uh, fee structure on both the buying and selling side, both the buyer pays a cheaper price and the seller gets more money. Again, it's about streamlining things and like making things as efficient and frictionless as possible. I think also to be as, as transparent as we can be. Um, and the three of us are collectors as well. So it's like, we're, um, coming from the mindset of the people that are buying and we want to present the product in the best possible way. Um, and I think we're sort of quite lucky with the community that has been built up so far, right? I mean, it's it's just, you know, watch collectors and um, I guess dealers as well. But um, but yeah, now we just need to sort of grow the business and, and spread the word in Asia. Um, and that's, that's, that's why I'm here, you know, is to, uh, to expand the business and um, make us more of a, a threat to the traditional auction houses one day. Well, that one day might be, uh, have already happened. Uh, considering that world record you have a few weeks ago with the, the Cartier crash watch that the, the, everyone was talking about both within when, with, and outside of the industry. This was a, a 1967 Cartier brought all in just over 1.5 million US, which is a, a world record for the reference. Uh, Eric, can you share the story behind this watch and what it means to loop this and to this new marketplace? I was pretty surprised at the results. Um, you know, I thought that it would bring about like a million dollars. Um, it ended up doing significantly more, obviously. Um, you know, this kind of goes with the uh, ethos of what we've been talking about, about rare things and really kind of exceptional condition. Uh, this watch was, um, you know, it's a fresh watch, so to speak. It had never been auctioned, uh, offered before. Um, it came by way of the uh, long, uh, long standing original owner of it. You know, it was just a really great result. Shocked me at the end. Most people understand that a real auction ends with the highest bid and not with the time counting down. And so, you know, we have this like two minute rule, which I think most, most auction 
sites. I think all of the online auctions on the auction houses, I think they all go by like a kind of a time extension at the end too. Sometimes some kind of like angry emails from people saying like, hey, I put this bid in at the last second. How did I get outbid? And, you know, we kind of have a boilerplate response to them. But, you know, this is a case where, you know, people waited until the last minute to bid and it extended. I don't remember how many times, but it must have been like eight, nine, ten times, you know, until finally it ended. And, um, you know, it was a really great result. We're really proud of that. The owner who bought the watch is really happy with it. You know, uh, it's a really rare piece. Um, I can't recall ever seeing one from uh, the mod, you know, like in our era of accurately describing things in the catalogs. Because, you know, before, like the descriptions were were not uh, were not the, the greatest. But, you know, I have not seen another uh, crash from this early in the production ever for sale. You know, it was a really great result for really a, a worthy watch. I'm reminded by this um, the heir to the, the uh, SD Lauder uh, company. One time, I think he was a huge art collector. And he said there's basically collecting is three O's. There's when you see something, you either say, oh, you say, oh, my, or you say, oh, my God. And I think that London crash was an oh, my God uh, watch uh, that, that nobody knew exactly what it was worth. And I think that there, when you see, oh, my God stuff, then you're, you're, you're always going to be shocked at what it brings because there are a lot of people that are only after those. Um, so I think that, that that crash in particular was a record, um, but I can't say that somebody overpaid for it because it was really, um, you know, one of the most important watches. So no, it was very well executed, and it really proves that you could handle, not just handle, you could just brilliantly promote and market and sell uh, seven-figure watches plus. And I expect we'll see some uh, even bigger numbers in the future. No pressure, uh, but it also shows that your nimbleness. Uh, within the marketplace is impressive. And I don't want to just say that you have a less bureaucracy than the auction houses, but you do. I mean, it's a smaller organization. The three of you can get on a, a call and make a quick decision. And I think no better way can we see what you've done that exemplifies that is with your charitable uh, auctions, the Pink Dial Project, um, the World Central Kitchen, what you did for Ukraine, and these were, uh, I imagine, just you just had a, a chat on the phone and said, let's do it. And two weeks later, you're up and running. Uh, can you take us through some of those uh, charitable initiatives that you've had? I mean, these are all collaborative things that we just, we can't take all the credit for, obviously. Um, they they both took like a lot of work. With the Pink Dial project, that was something that was in uh, progress. We worked with the brands and the brands, uh, you know, designed, a lot of them gave us kind of unique watches for the sale. And so that was like a very thought out thing that it took time to do. And, you know, uh, hopefully we'll continue with the Pink Dial project uh, auctions in the future. Um, but with the Ukraine solidarity auction, I mean, that was literally Way and Red Bar and all these guys like, hey, we want to do this. Like, can we do it now? I was like, sure, let's give it a shot, you know. And, um, you know, it uh provided uh this is just obviously just prior to sam joining us but um the loop this team definitely put in overtime to make sure that that worked out in this model like we're not the only ones doing this type of uh, online like auction type of thing but we are the only ones doing this 
in a more like hybrid or traditional way for us, like we control the quality, right? Uh, we list things, we fulfill the orders, you know, all that type of stuff. But with the Ukraine sale, um, you know, we got support from some brands, but a lot of these donations were from individuals. And um, because it happened so quickly, and also because it was a charitable thing, we, you know, we had it set up so that the individuals were the ones like kind of uh, uh, sending the items out directly. And we were relying on their imagery for the for uh, the lots that they donated. Justin and I had many conversations about this, about the look and feel on the site, because we have like a very recognizable look for our photography. And then with this type of thing where it was just a mix of this and a mix of that, um, we were a little bit concerned how it would come out, but, you know, thank God it, it, it came out pretty well. And, uh, I think the site still looked great. It was a really challenging, but, uh, good, good experience doing that. And it, you know, it's always, um, you know, like a rewarding endeavor to work, uh, with various charitable organizations prior to these two, even, um, we had a, uh, green 5711 that was, uh, auctioned off and the, uh, the consigner had donated the proceeds to uh, a charity. Um, and, you know, we donated our uh, commission to a charity as well. And, um, you know, we always uh, are looking forward to, you know, working with organizations and kind of um, helping raise uh, money for worthwhile causes. Well, congratulations. Off the top of your head, what were the totals for each of the uh, the, the Pink Dial project and uh, the Ukraine project? I think Pink Dial was like, in the 500s, like 550,000 or something. The Ukraine charity auction, uh, it was just under 250,000. Ah, congratulations. Us and the rest of the organizers were really humbled by the support that the watch collecting community had given uh, us. And, uh, you know, seeing the results on a lot of the lots that were really uh, spectacular, you know. We're on final three questions. All right, here's a softball question. What makes Loop This so special that we haven't discussed? Uh, again, I mean, I think it's the main thing is, is like uh, we try to make the process for buyers and sellers as frictionless as possible and provide like a wide audience for people to uh, sell their watches. What are the plans for the future? We're halfway through 2022. What are you thinking about for later in the year and beyond? So we're going to open an office in Hong Kong. That's next. Um, we're going to spread the word throughout Asia. But I think, yes, that's definitely my, my remit. Um, and yeah, just grow the business, have, have, have more watches, uh, build the price point so that we're, off, we're selling more expensive watches. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, being as streamlined as possible, as Eric and, and, and Justin said. Also, I think we're going to, um, you know, begin the process of doing more private sale. Um, there are obviously, um, you know, collectors that, uh, you know, might not want to um, consign at auction or potentially uh, want a quicker um, deal. So, um, you know, Sam uh, is obviously well versed in that space. So uh, in terms of Asia um, and collectors he has in other parts of the world um, can help us, uh, Eric and I, kind of facilitate private sales directly um, between two parties. I would say besides that, um, more of the same and more watches and more expensive watches, as Sam said. So, Well, I could imagine you might be hiring some more in the future. And uh, yes. we know there's jobs for watchmakers available. Hopefully, you'll get some resumes, Eric. And uh, when, when you are hiring uh, Loop This, I expect 
you're going to have lots of people reaching out to you. And I look forward to seeing how your team expands in the future. You certainly started out with some three strong principles. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being with us uh, this morning, this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Justin, Sam, Eric, and digging deep and with your thoughtful answers to, uh, to these questions. This has been our 16th episode in our Collectability podcast series. Thank you all for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And remember to follow us on the podcast player that you enjoy using in order not to miss any future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This is John Reardon for Collectability.